Abirachnim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat and this wonderful opportunity to gather together as Mishpacha's family today. I pray that as we open up your word, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word spoken, your voice heard, that nothing in me will be involved except that which you've ordained for this purpose, and that we will leave this place today transformed, better prepared to uh, share the kingdom of Messiah with the world around us. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah we pray, and everyone says... Amen and amen. Uh, this week we read Parsha, uh, it's actually a double Parsha, uh, Parsha Behar Bechuchotai, um, and uh, it's Leviticus chapter 25 through 27. It's the last two uh, Parshot of Leviticus. And next week we will dive into Bamidbar, into the book of Numbers. Um, this Parsha is, is it's got a lot of meat in it, right? We begin Parsha Behar discussing the Yovel or the Jubilee in which uh, Israel, as they enter into the Promised Land, is to count 49 years and then on the 50th year to proclaim the Yovel or the Jubilee year, at which point uh, debts are freed, all land is returned back to its, inherit, its inherited uh, tribe. Uh, we proclaim freedom, redemption throughout the land. Uh, Parsha Behar also talks about the Shemitah or the, uh, the sabbatical year of the land in which Israel is to work the land and count for six years and then on the seventh year every seven years they're to allow the land to rest entirely for for a year uh, which we know in uh, science tells us today that this is actually a necessity for the land right uh, Alabama was kind of uh, oddly enough a forerunner in this I know it's not unusual it's unusual for us to be a forerunner in anything but the the state of Alabama was kind of a forerunner in figuring this out that it's important to allow the land to rest so that it gets those nutrients back in now Alabama also kind of shifted that a little bit by instead of just letting the land rest they figured that they could um, just plant a different crop every so often and it would add different nutrients back in the land so they can just keep cycling through whatever but nonetheless we see the Yovel, we see the Shemitah in the, the, the Parsha, and uh, we've talked about those in the past and the powerful image there of the redemption we find in Messiah Yeshua and how they are foreshadowing uh, the reality of what the kingdom of God really is. Uh, however, we're going to move directly into Parsha B'chulchotai, which is our second Parsha of the double Parshot this week, um, and this is where I am going to primarily focus in the message uh, this Shabbat. So Parsha B'chulchotai opens up with these words in Hebrew. Im B'chulchotai if you walk in my statutes, keep my mitzvot, and carry them out. The Hebrew here can also be translated as, if only you would walk in my statutes, keep my mitzvot, and carry them out. The word telechu, which is where we uh, get the phrase, you walk in the, the beginning there, if you walk out my statutes, the phrase telechu, which means to walk, is from the Hebrew word halacha, or halach, which is also where we get the word halacha, or the way, the walk, which is in Judaism, the term for how we, for how we determine Jewish law, uh, how we respond to and live out Jewish law, and more specifically halacha in the Messianic construct is the way we interpret living the Torah, or in my perspective, not only the Torah, but the entirety of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, how we live that out. Now, 
We see halacha in the traditional Jewish world and, and a lot of what we do in our congregation, a lot of what we do in our own lives is absolutely brought forth from, from traditional halakha. Uh And along with that, we also recognize that as we go from uh, Joshua forward, we begin to see the Lord revealing more halakha to us as to how he would like for us to live out his word, to walk out his word in our life. And then we get to the Brichel Shar, the New Covenant writings, and we see an even greater uh, halachic understanding of how to you live out the word. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount is entirely halakha. It is Yeshua teaching halakha. It is Yeshua teaching how we, not how we live as believers forsaking the Torah, but how we live the Torah out in our lives as believers day in and day out. Leviticus 26 can be broken down into three distinct scenarios, which we will look at individually in a moment. I think it's important for us to keep in mind through Leviticus 26 uh, what Sir Isaac Newton says about the third law of motion, which could easily be seen playing out here. The third law of motion from Isaac Newton is for every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction, right? And we look through uh, chapter 26 of Leviticus, this is exactly what we see. This is certainly the case we find with each of these three scenarios. Our actions with Adonai's equal but opposite reaction. Ultimately, when it comes to this action and reaction, the choice is yours and mine. And the Lord makes it very clear in this Parsha that the choice is yours and mine. He's going to upkeep his end. The question is, are we going to? And he's going to react to our action. Uh, in Leviticus 26, verse 1, uh, the very beginning, I'm sorry, 26, verse 3, the very, very beginning of this Parsha, it reads, If you walk in my statutes, keep my mitzvot and carry them out, then I will give you rains in their seasons, the land will yield its crop, and the trees of the field will yield their fruit. This is our action. Our action is if we will uh, faithfully walk in his statutes, keep his mitzvot, and carry them out. Then he goes on to say, uh, uh, I will, then I will give you rain in their season. The land will yield its crops and the trees of the field will yield their fruit. I will bring shalom in the land and you will lie down. This is verse six. And you will lie down with no one making you afraid. I will remove dangerous beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your, your land. Verse nine, I will turn toward you, make you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul will not abhor you i will walk among you and will be your god and you will be my people i am adonai your god who brought you forth out of the land of egypt so that you will would no, not be their slaves and i have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright so leviticus 3 we see the action what what is our choice to do we have the choice to either uphold what the lord is asking of us or not to and so our action that we get to choose is if we walk in his mitzvot, uh, walk in his statutes, keep his mitzvot, and carry them out. And then he says what he will do in reaction, right, equal uh, action and reaction, what he will do in his reaction is that he will bring shalom in the land. Uh, when we lie down, uh, carrying on, he says, I will place my tabernacle among you. Uh, my soul will not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, and then at the end there in verse uh, 13, I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. So the choice is ours. We can walk faithfully with him. We can uphold our relationship in the covenant of the Lord. We can uphold our action in living out his word and see his blessing in great multitude. Or we can turn our back on him and we can turn our back on his word. And then the action or the reaction that we will get, which is equal but opposite, is that he will not. 
So if you pay attention, you'll notice that how similar Leviticus 26 uh, is to the blessing and curses toward the end of Deuteronomy. They are nearly identical. In this first scenario, we see the Lord yearning for his people, and the, act, uh, the Lord's yearning for his people, and the action in this scenario is that he has called Israel to honor their covenant with him, to walk faithfully in his mitzvot or his commandments, and to live them out sincerely. The reaction is that he says if Israel uh, walks faithfully with him, then he will bless the land and he will bless the people. They will not experience sword or fear. No enemies would be found in their midst. But the most important part of this reaction in verse 9, uh, in, in verse 9 through 13, in which he promises to confirm his covenant with Israel, he will place his dwelling place, the Mishkan, in our midst. And he will walk among us and be our God. And this scenario closes out with the words, as I said a moment ago, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. Notice that throughout the Torah, realistically, throughout the entirety of the Word of God, the overarching call of God for His people is to walk faithfully in relationship with Him, to walk faithfully in covenant with Him. Over and over again, He reminds Israel of this call and of the blessings that are in store for faithfulness to Him. We actually see in Revelation 21, verse 1 through 3, we see kind of a reiteration of the reality of what God says is going to happen here. We see this reality of the actual reality action of God to our faithful walking with him. It says in verse 1 of Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I also heard a, vo a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is among men, and he shall tabernacle among them. They shall be his people. And God himself shall be among them and be their God. So we see in the Alam Haba this discussion of the reality of the new heaven, new Jerusalem being in our midst. And the Lord literally placing his presence, his tabernacle, his dwelling among us and walking in our midst. We see similar language in John 1 and the discussion of Yeshua being the word made flesh coming and tabernacling among us. And it's a very important image for us to grasp that in order for this reality, reality to exist... We must be obedient and walking faithfully with him. Our action hinges, or, or his reaction hinges on our action to walk upright and faithfully to him. The heart of God for Israel has not changed, and it is the same heart of God for all of his creation, that we would walk in faithful relationship with him. This is what we are created for, as we see with Adam and Eve walking in the middle of the day with Adonai before they, uh, their, their exile from the garden. He desires to walk with us still. Look, the reason Adam and Eve went to hide with, and find garments and to hide wasn't because suddenly they heard God's voice, but it was because they knew God was coming. We don't know how long they were in the garden. Right? We know they were kicked out of the garden because they ate of the fruit God said not to eat, but there was also another command, be fruitful and multiply. It's assumable they didn't get kicked out for that, so they must have taken part in that one, right? Uh, the reality is, is that we don't know how long they were there, but we know that they must have been there long enough to know what to expect of God. And so when the Lord came to appear before them and to walk with them in the middle of the day, and I have this image of a, uh, uh, I don't know if you guys do this, but when I read the Bible, I can kind of see it play out in my head. Uh, I have this image of, of a father. We always see through Scripture this image of father and child, right? I have this image of a father walking through the park 
with his child holding hand in hand with him as he walks through. And there's this intimate relationship there. And I see Adam and Eve in the garden in the same way that they were prepared for this middle of the day walk in the park with the Lord until they weren't prepared anymore. And then they rushed to hide out of shame of what they did. Our action is walking in righteousness with him. His reaction is to dwell in our midst, to walk among us, and to uphold his covenant with us. Many believers would like to believe that the coming of faith in Messiah or coming to faith in Messiah means that his grace and mercy have freed us from the observance of the word of God. But how are we to live righteous lives? How are we to know righteous living if not by the word? The fullness of his word. The Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, and the Brachadashah. The fullness of the word of God. We move on to the second scenario that we see play out in Leviticus 26, verse 14. It says, But if you will not listen to me nor carry out all of these mitzvot, and if you reject my statutes, and if you, your soul abhors my ordinances so that you do not keep all my mitzvot, but instead break my covenant, this is the action. The reaction from God in verse 16 is, Then I will do the following to you in return. I will appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever that will dim the eyes and cause the soul to pin to pine away you will sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it you will set my faith i will set my face against you and you will be routed before your enemies those who hate you will rule over you and you will uh flee when you when no one pursues you leviticus 20 said <laughs> just thought about proverbs says only a fool runs when nobody's chasing there you go two and two uh, no, Leviticus 26, 18, this idea of action versus reaction continues, right? So the initial action was that he says, if we don't do what he asks of us, if we do not listen to him, if we do not carry out his commandments, then all of these terrors will come upon us. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, if in spite of these things, you will not listen to me, then the scenario gets worse. In chapter, in verse 21, he carries on again. If you keep walking contrary to me after all of that, and you will not listen to me. Verse 23, now if in spite of all of these things, this is the fourth time now, that you will not chasten by me, uh, that you will not be chastened by me, but walk contrary to me instead. And then verse 27, yet if in spite of all of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. We see five different distinct opportunities for her action to be a choice that realigns with the will of God. And five different times that the Lord says his reaction to our choice and action will only get worse and worse, not for the sake of punishment, but for the sake of trying to bring us back in Teshuvah. In the second scenario, we see the warning. The action in this scenario is that if Israel walks contrary to him, and the reaction is that then he will walk contrary to them. There are five individual warnings here. God says, if, you, if we refuse to listen to his word, if we refuse to live up to his standards of righteousness, if we reject his Torah then he will bring down terror upon us. With each of the warnings, the reaction of the Lord becomes more and more severe. The language is so powerful too. You can almost feel the pain in God's heart at the very thought of Israel's rejection. With the first action and reaction, his hope is that it would be enough to get our attention and to draw us back to Teshuvah, to draw us back to repentance, but because he knows the heart of fallen man, he knows that we are going to fall again and again and again. Four more times he says, if in spite of these things, his reaction to our rejection, you will not listen to me. 
when I read these words, I think of my relationship with my own kids. As a matter of fact, uh, recent weeks, maybe within the last few days, uh, I think of my relationship with my kids. Uh, I think of scenarios like when I tell my kids to clean their room. See you. When I tell my kids to clean their room and they don't do it. I go in to check on them when they've been in there for an hour supposedly cleaning their room. <clears throat> Obviously being way too quiet, but supposedly cleaning their room. I go to check on them to find that they're playing with toys or they're fighting and bickering back and forth because uh, their rooms are right beside each other. And for whatever reason, in the grand wisdom of whoever designed our house, their doors kind of face each other in a way that they can be in their own individual rooms and completely see each other. And so they'll bicker and fight back and forth or play back and forth. They're in their room. They are in there enough that if they hear us coming down the hall, they can quickly go do something and pretend that they're cleaning their room but they're not cleaning it. We'll come in and recognize that they weren't doing what was asked of them, and so then we have to bring some sort of punishment, right? So it usually will start with something like, all right, I'm gonna take your iPad. Your iPad's gone for however many, X number of days, three days, whatever. I'll take their iPad away, I'll stick it up, and I, I make sure I'm that horrible person that I make sure they are constantly reminded their iPad is taken, because I take it, I put it on the mantle of the fireplace, and I put it in a way that, you know, they've got these really colorful cases on them. I put it in a way that they can see it every time they walk in the living room. The iPad's there, and they can't have it, right? They can reach the mantle. They're not so short that they can't reach the mantle. They can reach it, but they know that they can't touch it, and they can't have it back. They can't interact with it. I'll take their iPad away for a couple of days and say, okay, now get back to your room. You need to get it done. You've got X number of minutes or an hour or whatever it is and then I'll come back a little while later and they're back to doing the same thing they may have shuffled a few things around but they haven't actually cleaned their room uh, and so then I come in and say okay well you're going to lose this I'm going to take what's your favorite toy let's take your favorite toy whatever and we start to go down the line and it may take 8, 10, 12, 16 weeks to get them to finally clean their room no it's not always that bad it's a couple of days but it's not always that bad but it may take a while but eventually they'll get the picture that you know what they're losing everything they actually like Sometimes punishment has to be a little worse to get their attention. But I'm not punishing my kid because I don't like them or because I'm angry with them or because I want to get rid of them. I'm punishing them because I want them to understand the necessity to come back to a right way of acting and living and interacting with me. I tell my kids all the time, they, you know, we have this really awesome relationship with our children where we readily and constantly tell them we love them and we dote affection on them and give them hugs and kiss them and what have you. And, and they're constantly telling us how much they love us. And uh, a lot of times we have to have this conversation with them where we have to explain to them that, you know what, it's great that you tell us you love us. Yeshua says, if you love me, what? Obey. It's great that you tell us you love us. But when you're not doing what we ask of you, when you're not obeying what has been asked of you, you're not showing us you love us. In fact, when you're doing opposite of what we've asked of you, you're telling us contrary to the fact that you love us. You're telling us you don't love us. Now you and I both know that you do. And you and I both know that we do in fact love the Lord. We're thankful for everything he has done for us. But when we're not obedient, we're not showing our love to him. When we're not obedient to him, we're not showing our reverence. When we're not obedient, we're not walking upright. And we're not following along with him. And every time I have to punish my kid, it's not out of joy. In fact, it makes me very upset when I have to. It makes me even more upset when I have to have the conversation that says, you are not saying you love me in your actions. Your actions should align with your word. Here in Leviticus 26, 
And again, in the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy, the Lord is saying the same thing to Israel. And throughout the Word of God, He is saying the same thing to you and I. Your actions should align with your mouth. If your mouth expresses that you love the Lord, your actions should live it out. And every time I have these conversations with my kid, I can almost feel the Lord tapping me on my shoulder with a slightly sarcastic look in his eyes and saying, now you know how I feel. Now you know how I feel. You and I have been guilty of treating God with exactly the same, in exactly the same way. And here's the kicker. It was bad enough before we found Messiah's salvation, but we fell just as much today as believers as our predecessors did in the wilderness and the promised land. And each and every single time we sin, it breaks God's heart. It wrecks him just a little more. And when my wonderful kids fail to do what I asked them, it does the same thing to me. But here's the reality. After I've had to punish my kids, and they finally get what I asked them to do done, the first thing I do is I grab them in my arms as tightly as I possibly can. I give them the biggest hug and the biggest kiss I can. And I reassure them that I love them. I reassure them that I care for them. I reassure them that I'm there for them. That I am not going anywhere. This reminds me of the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. In which the prodigal son goes to his father and says, Hey, you know what? I know that technically I'm not supposed to get my inheritance till you're dead. But it'd be really cool if I could have it now. Because I just really want to kind of blow this joint and do whatever I want. You know, it's cool that I've been here for however many years and worked under you and helped you out, but I want to go make my own way. I want to go have my own life. And so the father gives him his inheritance. And in the ancient Near East, when you get your inheritance, what does it mean? The person that you inherited it from is dead. So the son tells his father, you're now dead to me, and leaves and goes off for a huge party. And after a while, he runs out of everything, and he finds himself sitting in a, a, a pigsty, and he's looking at the carob pods, at the, the food that the pigs are eating, going, man, it'd be really good if I could just get one of those. <laughs> the, the pig's food looks awesome. I'm hungry. I've got nothing left. You know what? Even the lowest of my father's servants have better food to eat than these pigs do. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to ask him to at least let me be a servant of his, because at least then I'll be fed. And he comes back to his father and his father, you know, the, 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 the coolest thing about this story is that the entire time that the son's been gone, it appears as though the father has, and I picture, again in my head, I picture the word of God and I picture this, uh, you know, mid-40s, mid-50s father sitting on the wraparound porch outside of the house, staring down the driveway in his rocker, rocking back and forth and just longing for the day that off in the distance he'll see a figure coming. Maybe, just maybe, that figure as he draws closer would be his son, his long-lost son. And this one particular day, he's sitting on the rocker on the front porch, and he's rocking away. And he's amazed at everything God has provided to him. And he looks off in the distance, longing for the day that maybe his son will come. And, and there's a figure in the distance. And I picture him stopping walking, and he kind of leans forward a little bit on the rocker. And he's looking off into the distance, and as he looks off in the distance, he's trying to make out who is this coming. And he gets just close enough that he knows, he knows that, that figure. He knows that silhouette. He knows that outline. He knows the way the hair falls and the beard falls. He knows the way that he dresses. He can tell that this is his son that he's been longing to see come. 
the son is coming back to simply say, so, Father, I know I messed up bad and I know that I have, I have treated you horribly. I don't deserve for, for you to even think of me positively, much less show me your love. But I long, I long to at least be considered the lowest of your servant. And as he's running back to his father before he ever gets a chance to open his mouth, his father wraps his loving embrace around him and screams out in glee and joy so much that all of the members of his household, all of his servants hear it and come out to see what's going on. And he's kissing his son on the cheek and he's, he's telling him how much he loves him and he's doting on him and doting on him. And, and he tells his servants, go get the best that we have to offer and let's have a feast because my son who was dead has now come back to me. This is the heart of God. Every time we sin, we turn our back on him and we walk away. This is the heart of God. He's sitting there waiting for the day that we come back to him. Except unlike the father of the prodigal son, he's not back where we left him. He's right there with us constantly. Hey, I'm right here. I haven't left you. I know you turned your back on me, but I haven't left you. Just come back to me. My arms are ready. I love you and I want to restore you. And this is exactly the reality, the action, reaction that we see in this third scenario in Leviticus 26, beginning with verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and that of their fathers, and their treachery they committed against me, and how they walked contrary to me, picking up with verse 41 with the Lord's reaction to Israel's action or choice of action. In return, I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. And if at that time their uncircumcised hearts become humbled so that they accept the punishment for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land says, if you come back to me in Teshuvah, if you come back to me with a humble heart, then I will remember my covenant with you, and I will take you into my embrace. In this third scenario, we see the action in this scenario is the promise of Israel's Teshuvah, or their repentance. The reaction is the Lord's forgiveness, His grace, and His mercy poured out upon them. Understanding this, though, albeit the Lord prophesies in Leviticus 26 of what will happen, and ultimately what does happen, when Israel turns their back on him, Israel was in fact under absolutely no obligation to follow through with the sins that the Lord said they would fall prey to. The Lord prophesied, this is what will happen if you do this, but Israel didn't have to do it. They had a choice. The same is true for you and I. We don't have to fall short of the glory of God. We have a choice. We have a choice to walk faithfully in covenant with the Lord because of everything he's done for us. In fact, I wholeheartedly believe that God's true desire here was that the words he was speaking in Leviticus 26 would be a wake-up call. A wake-up call to a people uh, who could barely make it to the other side of the miraculously split Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds, before they began to turn their hearts and their backs on God. My people, the Jewish people, we barely made it to the other side of the water. We barely made it into freedom before we began to turn our backs on the Lord. I truly believe that what he wanted Israel to do was to understand the reality of what God was predicting and that we would prove him wrong. That the words he's saying could potentially happen, that we would live our lives in such a way that they would never come true. If we would walk with him and in, uh, if we would walk with him and with uh one day I'll learn to read. If we would walk with him, the ends, it would end with what would happen when we return back to him. 
If we hadn't sinned in the first place, what occurs when we turn back into Shuvah, which is the, the father wrapping his arms back around him, would have never ended. There would have never been a need for us to turn back into his loving embrace. If we simply walked faithfully with him, none of that would have happened. Funny enough, though, both are pretty much the same reactions on his part. Romans 3.21, we read, But now God's righteousness apart from the Torah has been revealed, to which the Torah and the prophets bear witness, namely, the righteousness of God through putting trust in Messiah Yeshua, to all who keep on trusting, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Equally as much, God has, uh, God's heart is for faithfulness. He knows that we are fallen. He knows that we sin and fall short of the glory. His cry of his heart is for us to make teshuvah and to walk restored in his promises. See, here's the reality, the third cause and effect, the action and reaction. The Lord knows we have and will sin. He knows before he ever called Israel out of Egypt that they would end up rejecting him in the wilderness Yet he called us anyways. He has provided Yeshua for our salvation, our restoration, before either you or I ever had a chance to sin for the first time outside the womb. The provision for salvation was already there. He knew before we ever called, uh, he, he knew before he ever called Israel out what Israel was going to do. Yet he calls us anyways, and he has provided Yeshua for our salvation and restoration in the same sense that he warns our forefathers in Parsha B'chuchotai of our inevitable failures and of our ultimate return back to him. Hashem was well aware of our sins and failures, of what you and I would do as we turn our backs on him. And he provided Yeshua as a means of a true teshuvah, a true heart change. All we have to do is to accept his salvation, turn toward him, and walk faithfully with him. And he will faithfully walk with us. This is the same thing that Adonai says to Solomon uh, about Israel in 2 Chronicles 7 after the consecration of the newly built temple. Verse 12, Then Adonai appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people, when my people over whom my name is called, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Notice first it takes Israel going through all of the warnings, all of the scenarios of Leviticus 26 and the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy before this comes about. And the Lord says, if my people then realize and they return to me, they make teshuvah, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. And Peter makes the same plea with those who witnessed the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh in Acts 2. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be immersed in the name of Messiah Yeshua for the removal of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as Adonai our God calls to himself. And Peter is saying, if you simply make teshuvah, God will restore you and he will in fact live up to his promises that he gives us in the Torah to make his presence dwell among us, to make his mishkan, his dwelling place in us and to walk faithfully with us. In Parshat B'chokotai, we see the full gambit of the Lord's heart 
for Israel and his creation. We see three distinct scenarios in which we have, act, have to act and the Lord reacts. Now I use the term react loosely as it relates to God's part in the discussion. But let's be honest, he isn't reacting. He is doing exactly what he says he would do based off of what he knows we will do. But he doesn't want to react mo no more than I want to punish my children. So ultimately the choice is ours. We can choose to walk faithfully with him, to walk faithfully in discipleship to Messiah Yeshua and to have him walk in our midst. We can choose to sin and fall short of the glory, ultimately walking contrary to his ways and thus the consequences are his reaction. And we will do, and when we do fall short, we can also choose to make teshuvah and return back to him. The choice is ours. And there is certainly a choice to be made and one with eternal reaction for the temporal action. Just as God desire for, God's desire for our forefathers was that they would live faithfully in the first scenario, so is the case for us today as believers. But should we choose the second scenario, his yearning is for us to slif, swiftly return to his embrace and walk in the third scenario as the prodigal son who returns in joyful celebration or rather who returns to a joyful celebration. We can sin over and over and over again, but our actions are telling God something contrary to the, what our words say. And what God wants to see is an action that aligns with what our hearts are supposed to be. He wants to see an action in which we return and say, we do not deserve anything you have done for us. We do not deserve your embrace. We do not deserve your love. We do not deserve your presence. But we're here to walk faithfully with you anyways. And the whole time the Lord is standing with his arms wide open waiting for us to turn back around. And I picture, uh, was it... Uh, Oh, I lost it. Something McGuire. Uh, I just lost the name of the movie. This wasn't in my stuff here, so I don't know. But, uh, oh, I lost the name of the movie. But it, it turns around and goes, you had me at hello, right? This is the reality of God. Is he, what? Jerry Maguire. There we go. Uh, I had Toby Maguire. I knew Toby wasn't right because, uh, you know, that's an actual actor, uh, and this was a movie. But <laughs> Jerry Maguire, he comes in the room, and he starts his whole spiel, and she stops him uh, and goes, you— you had me at hello. The Lord standing with his arms wide open saying, you had me at the turnaround. You had me at the repentance. You had me at hello. I've been here the whole time. I haven't left you, even though you've left me. The Lord wants nothing more than that our actions line up with our words. When we tell him we love him, he wants us to live that love out in obedience. Abirachmim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for your mercy upon us. We thank you for the grace that you've poured out. We thank you for the blood atonement given in Messiah Yeshua that we can be restored in spite of all of the times that we have harmed you, hurt you, broken your heart, turned our backs on you, rejected you, rejected your word. But Father, you've never rejected us. You have been there waiting for us. And you yearn for nothing more than teshuvah followed by faithful, upright walking with you. Father, I pray that you will continue to bolster our faith and our discipleship in you. That we will become even greater examples. 
of Messiah Yeshua to the world around us and that we will be a blessing to you rather than a curse upon the world you have given us. B'shem Yeshua Meshachim. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen and amen.